This afternoon we will be considering Baptist Catechism question number 87. Only one question this week. We've been considering them in batches recently, but we will be considering question 87, which asks, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? What a wonderful question to ask after a very long consideration of the Ten Commandments. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is this, No mere man since the fall, is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, word, and deed. We'll read now from 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this afternoon. We spent 17 weeks considering God's moral law. Did you know that? Oh, 17 weeks, in my opinion, flew by very quickly. First, we learned that God's moral law was written on the heart of man at the time of creation. Next, with the help of our catechism, we learned that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law. The moral law is summarily comprehended in them. After that, we learn that the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. And then we proceeded to consider each one of the Ten Commandments, what they require and what they forbid. As we progressed through our study, it became clear that the first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. And what are the first four commandments? They are these. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship to God. And then the last six have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. And so what are commandments 5 through 10? Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And where are these 10 commandments found? They're found in two places in Holy Scripture, in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, it is so very important for us to know Uh, these Ten Commandments. We should have them memorized in the mind, and we should also cherish them within the heart. Yes, it needs to be acknowledged that there are some things said in these Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. Let me say that again. There are some things said in these Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. What am I talking about? Well, let me mention three things briefly. One, we know that Israel, under the Old Covenant, was to rest and worship on the seventh day. They were to observe the Sabbath day on the seventh day. 
But we are to honor the Sabbath day on the first day of the week because Christ is risen. The abiding moral law is that one day in seven is to be set aside as holy unto the Lord. But we know that the day itself is ceremonial and symbolic. A Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God, so the pattern of one in seven remains. But the day has changed. Whenever we read the Ten Commandments, we must keep that in mind, that these were originally given to Old Covenant Israel, and there are some things in these Ten Commandments that were unique to them. The abiding and never-changing moral principle is this. A portion of time is to be devoted to the worship of God ever since the creation of the world. The pattern is this. One day out of every seven is to be regarded as holy. Before the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the day was the seventh day. But after Christ rose again to earn our salvation and to usher in a new creation, the day is the first day of the week. It is the Lord's day. It is the Sabbath day of the Christian church. It is the Christian new covenant Sabbath. Two, what is said after the second commandment regarding visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, has also changed. I've taught you this before, but I do want to remind you about it. In Old Covenant Israel, physical descent meant a lot. To descend from Abraham physically meant that you were by nature of your birth, a part of the Old Covenant. Men and women were born into the Old Covenant, therefore, and this covenant has sanctions attached to it. If the people obeyed God in this covenant, they would be blessed in the land. If they disobeyed God, they would be cursed and vomited out of the land. And because of this, the fathers would sin in Old Covenant Israel. And who would pay the price for it? Oftentimes, it would not only be the fathers themselves, but the children of the fathers who would pay the price for uh, the sins of those who went before them in the previous generation. But it is not so under the new covenant. No one is born into the new covenant. To partake of the new covenant, one must be born again and have faith in the Messiah. This generational principle has melted away, therefore. And Jeremiah the prophet spoke of this change ahead of time when he spoke of the newness of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31.29 we read, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. That's quite an image, isn't it? Under the Old Covenant, it was true. The, the things that the fathers did, the evil things that the fathers did, would be felt by the children as the nation fell under the displeasure and curse of God because of their covenant unfaithfulness. But that principle does not carry over into the New Covenant because we are not born into this covenant. We are only reborn into this covenant through the preaching of the Gospel and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So under the New Covenant, each and every Christian stands before the Lord in a more individual way. Yes, there is a corporate element to the Christian faith indeed, but this generational principle that was articulated after the giving of the second commandment has melted away under the new covenant. Three, and related to this, the command to honor your father and your mother is followed by a promise in the Ten Commandments. And the promise is this, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We must remember that under the Old Covenant, a particular land was given to Israel, and they would be blessed in that land if they kept God's law. But under the New Covenant, 
No particular land is given to God's people. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are strangers on the earth. That is what is said so clearly in the New Testament. Uh, We do not have an earthly home in the way that the Old Covenant people of God did, but we are strangers on this earth. And so, when Paul commands children to honor their parents under the New Covenant, and why does he command children to honor their parents under the New Covenant? Because this is the ever-abiding moral law of God, that children are to honor their parents. And so, he does restate this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes from the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And then he makes this remark, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. I wonder if you can see what Paul did here. He dropped this little mention of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, because we have no such land. We live on the earth generally under the New Covenant as sojourners and exiles, but the principle still does remain. Children are to honor their parents, and if they do honor their parents, they are going to, generally speaking, live a blessed life in comparison to those who live in rebellion against their parents and against all authority. I think it is very interesting what Paul does here. He brings over these moral principles. He brings over into the New Covenant all of these principles that do remain, but he drops off mention being made of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you because no such land has been given to us. The principle of enjoying a blessed life remains, but the particular circumstances change with the transition from the Old Covenant to the New So whenever we read the Ten Commandments from the book of Exodus or from the book of Deuteronomy, we should remember that they are indeed a summary of God's moral law, which does not change, but that there are these things, these three things mentioned, which were unique to Old Covenant Israel. The seventh day Sabbath, which corresponded to the covenant of works, the principle of national guilt, and the promise of blessing in the land of Canaan, Uh, These things have changed. The moral law of God will never change. It is indeed summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, but there are some things stated in the Ten Commandments that were unique to Old Covenant Israel. God's law, brothers and sisters, is good. Do you agree with this? God's law is good. But do not forget what Paul wrote to Timothy. Now we know that the law is good, and then he says, if one uses it lawfully. Uh, put into, um, uh, into just maybe more common speech, God's law is good, provided that we use it right and do not abuse it. It's a big if, I think. Whenever we handle God's law, we must remember that it is possible to misuse it. The law is good, but it is easy to misuse. And when, is it, and when it is misused, that which is good becomes something that is very bad. And how is God's law misused? It is misused when men and women think that they can stand before God as righteous by the keeping of it. That is a terrible misuse of God's law. And this error is so very common. All of the religions of the world, with the exception of Orthodox Christianity, really make this error. They believe that they will stand right before God on the last day because of their 
good works and obedience. All of these world religions have different ways of saying this, but they share this in common. Uh, they put their hope in the goodness of man, in man's ability to live a life that is good. Um, their hope is that in the end, uh, their good works and good deeds will outweigh their bad. Uh, they believe that they will stand right before God on the last day because of their good works. And, and many who are non-religious make the same mistake too. They reason like this, if God exists, then He will accept me because I am good. But this is a grave mistake. Those who think this way have not understood what God requires of them. They think they are righteous when they are not. And so common is this error that Paul the Apostle calls it the stumbling stone. He refers to this error here, this particular misuse of the law of God, as the stumbling stone. In Romans 9.30 he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is Israel's great error. This is their great mistake. They, they thought that this law that was given to them would be a pathway to righteousness. And he calls this error the stumbling stone. It is the thing that so many people trip over. This is so very common. In all of the world religions and even amongst the non-religious, people assume that they are good before God and therefore do not need a Savior. The Scriptures say otherwise. The Scriptures teach us from Genesis 3 onward that the only way to be right before God is by the grace of God and through faith in the Savior that God has provided. As we studied the Ten Commandments, I tried to remind you of this over and over again. God's law is good, but we must be very careful not to misuse it. God's law is good because it is used by the Lord to restrain evil in the world today in a general way. God's law is good because it functions as a light to the feet of the faithful as they sojourn in this world. It shows us the way that we should go. It makes us wise. And it is used by the Lord to sanctify us further in Christ Jesus. And God's, God's law is good because the Spirit of God uses it to convict us of sin and to cause us to flee to Jesus for refuge from the wrath of God, which is due to us because of sin. God used the law to drive us to Christ initially. He made us aware of the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior as the law was pressed upon our souls. And He also uses His law to drive us to Christ again and again as His children, so that we might turn from sin into Christ day by day, and even moment by moment. 1 John 1, which we read earlier, warns us about this stumbling stone, doesn't it? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And John does also exhort us to run to Jesus for refuge, saying, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This He does through the Messiah that He has sent for us. I want you to notice that our catechism guards us against trusting in our own righteousness. Immediately after a long consideration of God's moral law, our catechism asks, Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? 
The answer that is given is very, very helpful, and I would like to consider it with you piece by piece very briefly. Again, hear it in its entirety. No mere man since the fall is able to, in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, word, and deed. You, you know I love our catechism. I, I think your love for it is growing. And, and one of the reasons I love it is because it is, it is brief. These answers are brief, but every single word and phrase is so carefully chosen and crafted so as to promote and preserve the truth. Notice a few things about this answer. First of all, notice the word mere. No mere man is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. Why the word mere? I think it is to leave room for the obvious exception of Jesus Christ. He was a man, and he did perfectly keep the commandments of God, but I think we would all admit he was no mere man. Two, notice the phrase, since the fall. Why this phrase? Well, it is a matter of precision. Adam, before the fall, was able to perfectly keep the commandments of God, but he was also able to sin, and this he did. Now the children of Adam are born in sin and with corrupt natures. We sin because we are born in Adam, and so no mere man since the fall is able to keep God's law. Three, notice that the Catechism does not say that we are not able to keep God's commandments at all. Uh, that would not be true. Uh, those who are in Christ do in fact have the ability to obey God from the heart. Why? Because they have been renewed. Corruptions remain within us, that is true. We do still struggle with sin, we do still commit sin in thought, word, and deed. But it is also true that we have been renewed from the heart, therefore we have been freed from bondage to the evil one, bondage from his, in his kingdom, and bondage to sin itself, so that we are set free to live in obedience to God. Here is what is true. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God. Not even the best of Christians perfectly keep God's law. For, notice the phrase, in this life. With these three little words, in this life, we are reminded of the life to come. And the fact that in the life to come, we will no longer be able to sin if we, were, if we are in Christ Jesus thanks be to God. And why will we not be able to sin in the life to come? It is it's because God's work will be finished in us. Everything will be brought to a consummation, including ourselves, and in glory, this ability to sin will not be present because we will have so been renewed and changed that we will be confirmed in righteousness forever and ever due to the work that Jesus Christ has done and due to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Fifthly and lastly, Notice the phrase, but daily break them in thought, word, and deed. If we understand what God's law requires of us and what it forbids, truly, then we will confess that not a day passes wherein we do not violate God's holy law in some way. It may be that we violate it in deed. It may be that we violate it in word or even in thought. Certainly all will confess that we daily fail to love God as He deserves, and also we fail to love our neighbors as we ought. And so, by way of conclusion, uh, brothers and sisters, I think I should ask you this. Having considered God's law, what it requires and what it forbids, and having considered the fact that no mere man keeps God's law, but does daily break God's law in thought, word, and deed, aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ? 
Aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ? Aren't you grateful for God's marvelous grace? I, I want you to see this, that, that there is a sense in which the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot really be understood or appreciated apart from God's law. The law and the gospel comply with one another. They work hand in hand. The law shows us our sin and our need for a Savior, and then the gospel presents Jesus Christ to us as that Savior, as the one who has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And as we consider these things and as we grow in our knowledge of them, our gratitude for Jesus Christ should increase. Yes, our appreciation for the love of God in Christ Jesus will grow as we consider the gospel, but the gospel can only be truly understood and appreciated when we see it against the dark backdrop of God's law and our violation of it in thought, word, and deed. Let's go now to a brief word of prayer, and then we will go to corporate prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would indeed do this work in us as we consider the Ten Commandments, as we consider the summary of your moral law, that you would convict us of sin, not so that we might run away from you in terror, but so that we might run to you through faith in Jesus the Christ, the mediator between God and man. Do convict us of sin to bring us to faith in Christ initially. There may be some in this room even who have not yet placed their faith in Christ, I pray that you would draw them by your word and spirit. But for those who are in Christ, I pray that you would sanctify us further. Lord, I pray that we would not be content with our sin. I pray that we would not be satisfied with living a life of sin in in deed or in word or in the heart. I pray that you would purify us to the core of our being so that we might walk worthily before you, O Lord, for our good and the glory of your name and all of God's people say. Amen.